You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com. The draft is in the rearview mirror. Jim and Jonathan, I think, have gotten a chance to get a little bit of sleep over the last week, uh, take a breath and look back on what teams did. And we're going to talk about some of the teams that did the best work in the draft as far as 2016 goes. And we are lucky to be joined in the podcast right now by Chris Buckley, Red Scouting Director. And, uh, Chris, first of all, thanks a lot for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, my, first, my question for you, Chris, is I, I know the Reds have quickly gotten to work and, and first four picks of the draft have, have agreed to deals. How important is that after the draft to get these guys signed as quick as possible so you can get them right into the system and get them playing baseball again? Well, whenever possible, we, we would like to get them started as quickly as possible just because there is a big transition from amateur baseball to professional baseball. You, you have to turn that aluminum bat in and go to a wood bat. Instead of playing three or four times a week, it's six or seven. So whenever we can, we like to get them going. Sometimes uh, in some situation, it, it is good to give a kid a little break and whatnot, but usually we like to get them going quickly. Chris, uh, really from the early going, there was you know a lot of buzz about uh, you guys and Nick Senzel, who you eventually took number two overall. Uh, you know, tell us when you you sort of realized. You know, I guess first you had to make sure that the Phillies weren't going to take him, but when you realized that he was your guy, and and how happy you are that you were at, you were able to to not only draft him, but as you know, as you mentioned a bit. The answer to Tim that you're able to to get him into the fold so quickly. Sure, sure. Well, f- first of all, t- none of these players get drafted on one or two games. Uh, Nick's a player we've been watching since the tenth grade in high school. He played for a very powerful high school team, Farragut in Knoxville, Tennessee. On that team was Larry Simcox's son, Dave Serrano's son. I remember going in to watch those guys in high school in our area scout that. This infielder here, Senzal, is going to be a very good player because he probably go to college. But uh, we followed Nick all last summer in the Cape. He had an outstanding summer. He's a player we've, we've had high interest in for a number of years. Uh, you know, there was only one team picking in front of us. I think we knew for quite a while he was going to be our guy. Hey, Chris, you know, obviously you guys were in a position to, to do a lot of damage in the draft. Not only do you have the, the number two overall pick, you have a bonus pool of almost $14 million, and you got to pick again at, at 35, and uh, I guess it was, what, 43 on draft day. What is it like? I mean, you obviously have targets you're hoping get to you at 35 and 43, and you hear signability numbers, and this guy might fall, and that guy might fall. When did you get an inkling that you were able to you were going to be able to get Taylor Trammell and Chris Oakey with those picks? And how much are you sweating that out? I mean, you pick two and you have to wait, you know, 33 picks before you get your second choice. When did you get a sense that those were going to be the two guys you might wind up with? 
Well, we, we didn't really know until we got very close to both picks. Those were two players we, we had a whole lot of interest in. That we've been, uh, in Chris Oakey's case, he's a Florida kid, and I have a whole bunch of my higher-level guys that live down here in the state. He, he's a kid we've been watching play since the 10th grade. But, you know, there's a lot of communication with the families, with the advisors. Uh, we didn't know, you know, when you're at, uh, when your second pick's at 35, there's, there's no way of knowing who will be there. You certainly hope certain players get there, but it wasn't until we were getting closer to, to both picks. Chris, you know, now that I, I guess it, it may change again with the, with the new agreement is collectively bargained, so you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but it, it seems that more and more teams, you know, as the years have gone by with this bonus pool structure, have gotten uh, better at manipulating the system and, and, and using it to, to get talented players throughout. Uh, was that something that was like a feeling out process for you, you know, going from what it used to be, which was, you know, pick a guy, you know, figure out what it costs to get him, and, and, and now having to kind of play bookkeeper at the, at the same time as evaluating talent? Well, I don't know if the proper word's manipulation, but, but there, there certainly are advantages now to having the bigger caps, for sure. I think all 30 teams would agree to that. But I, I just don't think people know how much work goes into this for 30 scouting staffs with all the information we're getting back from the families, the kids that have advisors, and all we tried to do is, is maximize what we had, and ho- hopefully we did that. I, I want to ask you, Chris, you, one of the guys, I mean, you, you, I really like the draft. I mean, you, you get Sinzel, one of the best college bats. You get Taylor Trammell, one of the best athletes in the draft. Chris Oakey might be the best all-around catcher. Nick Hansen out of, out of Minnesota is a, you know, kind of prototypical, you know, power high school pitcher. But your, your fourth-round pick really fascinates me. You know, Scott Moss of Florida who didn't pitch, you know, the first couple of years of Florida after Tommy John surgery and only pitched 23 innings this spring. But, but it, you know, it's a 6'5 lefty who can get up to 95 and have a sharp slider. I, I guess I want to ask you, one, how easy was it to see him? Because I think he only pitched about 23 innings this year so far. He, he did pitch a lot in the SEC tournament. He got a start. Um, two, are you guys planning on using him as a starter or a reliever going forward? And three, just the Gators as a whole, can you remember a college pitching staff this deep? I mean, they had a first-round pick in A.J. Puck, a second-round pick in Logan Shore. Uh, Alex Fido is probably a first-round pick next year. That's their weekend rotation. you got guys like Moss, Dean Dunning, who was a, a first-round pick, and, uh, and, Alex, and, and Sean Anderson, who I think was a third-round pick. That would be the weekend rotation in most schools. And then we're not even talking about some of their freshmen like Brady Singer and Jackson Coar, who – there easily could be first-round picks two years from now. What, I mean, what a staff. That, that's a lot of questions there, Jim, but I'll do the best I can to, <laughs> to, try, to try and answer them all. I cannot remember a staff as talented as Florida's in the new scholarship system. They have 11.7. Those guys certainly do a great job bringing in the talent and whatnot. But, no, the, your last question, I cannot remember a staff. And in all these picks that we've made, the Reds, there's a consistency to what we've done. I mean, our, our scout pointed Nick Senzel out to me when he was in 10th grade. Okay, Taylor Trammell, uh, 
best veteran scouts that scouts that area. Uh, Chris Oakey's from down here where we've seen him play a whole lot. Nick Hansen played on our scout team. Uh, we, we think maybe we know him a little better than, than the other 29 teams, hopefully. Scott Moss, uh, Scott, Scott plays at the University of Florida. Gregson, you know, Mike's dad handles Florida for me. Uh, I think the information that we get in that program or the way we're able to scout it is, is probably as good as anybody else's. So we're hoping he can start. We're hoping uh, maybe we know something there that somebody else doesn't know or whatnot. And on that team, it is tough to get the innings. They're really, really talented. And maybe if this kid pitched somewhere else, he would have started every Saturday. But as the draft unfolded and we started to see in the second, third, fourth, and fifth rounds, there weren't many starters up there, left-handed starters. We, we thought we'd better grab Scott. So we're, we're, we're hoping he can start. If, if not, we certainly think he can pitch in the bullpen. Uh, Chris, I got one more for you, but I promise not to make it a 17-part Jim Callister question. <laughs> um, uh, just you know, I know there's, you barely get to catch your breath. You're making sure all guys get signed, and then there's the summer showcase circuit. So this is actually a, a short two-piece. So just uh, give us a sense of what your summer will look like, and oh. how important are performances in the summer, be it at high school showcases, Cape Cod League, in terms of uh, you know, putting together you know your list for next year. Okay. Well, first, yeah, it, it is important. We we have three scouts right now in Fort Myers, which will start. Uh, you know, that's the perfect game showcase. It, it's down here, so we have three guys down there that will help us kick off the summer and prepare for the 2017 draft. We're, we're also actively getting ready for the July 2nd draft. Which, which Tony Arias and I, Miguel Machado, had to spend a whole lot of time get, getting ready for that. Uh, we have scouts assigned to every major event all summer. Uh, I see as many as I can. My other higher-level guys get to almost all of them. But it, it's pretty much 11 months now to, to put those three days together. Chris, I have one final question for you, and I will sure. be more concise than my uh, than my last question. You, know, you guys do have a bonus pool of almost $14 million, and if I add these up in my head right, I think the first four picks that you guys have already signed cost about $12.3 million. So you still have you know, $1.7 million or so left to spend. Do you guys, the way you guys have this budgeted out, do you think you'll be able to make a run at somebody after the tenth round? You know, I don't. You know, you took a couple of highly rated guys, guys like J.C. Flowers out of Florida or Cooper Johnson out of Illinois, or, or were two guys who jumped out. Can you guys, can you guys make a run at somebody after the tenth round? Do you think with your with your bonus pool? Well, that that's plan, and, and you're, you're exactly right. That's why we did take Cooper Johnson and. Nick Durr and the Flowers kid up in Jacksonville. So we have those guys in case we are able to do something. I learned a long time ago it's, it's better to have them than let some kid go up to Cape Cod, become a free agent, and have a bidding war start or whatever. So that's the whole uh, – we put a lot of time and effort into this. And, uh, unlike you guys, I have some young guys that are really good at that math that can help me with all this stuff. And, and we have a terrific group that works very hard for 
probably 11 months to put this whole thing together. All right, outstanding stuff. That's Chris Buckley joining us, Red Scouting Director. Chris, th thanks so much, and that's great insight into everything to do with the draft and, and what the Reds got done this season. Thanks so much. Oh, uh, thank you, guys. Nice talking with you. Bye -bye. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, that was really great stuff from Chris Buckley, uh, and that kind of transi transitions us, guys, into I want to get your takes on uh, who had the best drafts um, as far as uh, the teams go in the last week. Obviously, drafting high helps. Having lots of pick picks early on in the draft helps. Uh, but we're going to go, you each get to pick two, and I'll bounce back and forth. Um, and I'm going to start with Jim. So, Jim, you get to go first. You wrote a kind of an article about this, so we'll give you the edge there. But which team had the best draft at this point when you look at all the guys they brought in? Yeah, I guess I get this is a, I love this question, uh, Tim, because I spent a couple hours breaking this down. So I'm very prepared for this question. I really liked what the Phillies did. You start at the top. You're, you're usually, you know, it's usually unless something horrible, horrible happens, you're going to like the team to pick number one overall. And I really like the pick of Mickey Moniak at the top of the draft. This guy's going to hit. He's going to stay up the middle. He's going to run. I think he's going to be at least a you know 12 to 15 home run guy. Not a big power guy, but he doesn't have to be. Um, I think there's floor, there's ceiling. You, you really can't talk to anybody who's seen Mickey Moniak who, who isn't super enthused about him. So I like that pick. They came right back in the second round. They, 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 you know, the strength of this draft we've talked about all spring was high school pitching. They got a first-round caliber arm in Kevin Gowdy from California in the second round. They come out day two. They get one of the best high school bats in the draft, and Cole Stobie, who's going to hit for power and average, probably moved to third. You know, they got they went on and got you know lefty starters in the fourth and fifth rounds, and in JoJo Romero and Cole Irvin, who could both move along fairly quickly. I thought they stole David Martinelli out of Dallas Baptist in the sixth round. He was one of the best best athletes in the college ranks. I, I could go on and on and on, but we don't need to do a three-hour podcast where I break down every Phillies pick. But suffice it to say, I really, really liked what the Phillies did. And it seems like they're going to be able to sign all those guys, right? With the money that they're going to save on Moniac, they should be able to spread it around pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's not like Moniac was a discount pick, but I mean, that, that the signed value for pick number one is $9 million. And the last two first-round picks, number one overall picks, have gotten six and a half. And I think Mickey will probably come in somewhere between six and six and a half. And, you know, and he was a legitimate number one pick, but you're going to save you know, two and a half, three million dollars right there. So, yeah, they'll be able to get Gowdy done. Um, I think they'll be able to get a couple guys after the tenth round done as well. They're going to have no problem signing their guys. All right, Jonathan, you're not allowed to go with the Phillies, but who, who's another team? Uh, maybe you wouldn't have gone with the Phillies anyway, but who do you like as far as best draft? Well, uh, I'm hoping that maybe Chris Buckley is still hanging on the line listening. <laughs> I'm going to go with the Cincinnati Reds, uh, or at least he'll, he'll tune in later uh, to, to hear how he sounded. Uh, but obviously it's not uh, going out on a limb, as Jim said. It, it, is kinda, it is easier to take the guys at the top, and they have, they have that extra pick, uh, the 35th. So they had uh, three picks in the top 50, uh, and, and that always helps. But, you know, there have been times where teams have had multiple picks and they haven't necessarily done well with them in, in terms of, you know, who they went after. You know, and getting Nick Senzel at number two, that was their guy, you know, from the get-go and, and arguably the best college offensive performer in the draft, best pure hitter. Uh, you know, so, so they, they get him right around where, where they should, but they, they got what they felt was the best guy on the board. And then uh, Taylor Trammell is... is Jim mentioned when we were talking to Chris, is, you know, 
maybe the most athletic player in the draft. Really, really great tools. But with the fuel for the game, it's not all raw projection. Uh, and that's part of the reason why his name was popping up in the first-round consideration. Uh, Chris Oakey, get, uh, as a second-rounder, his name was popping up at the end of the first round as well. So you can make the argument that they got three first-round talents with their first three picks uh, and left them with money uh, to go after some guys a, a, a little later. And I love the Scott Moss pick. Also, Florida is my area when we split up the country, and he, he was really intriguing through exceptionally well uh, in the in postseason play, first start in forever. I mean, first start where he went more than three innings. Uh, and then if they can get some of those later-round guys done, uh, one or two of those high schoolers, uh, then they really use the, the system well. And maybe Chris doesn't like the word manipulated because it sounds like it's a negative thing. Uh, but I don't mean it as a negative, and, and I think that's exactly what they managed to do this year. How about we go with worked, worked it, worked the system? They worked the system. They didn't break. <laughs> you're not breaking any of the rules, right? I'm not saying that you're doing anything not allowed. I mean, it's all within the the, the rules as spelled out by the you know the CBA. So I, I think that's why I don't see it as a negative at all. No, absolutely. And, and certain teams that are have certain amounts of bonus pools, you have to do that. I mean, it's it's something that in this day and age, is, it's almost become a necessity. All right, Jim, who's another team for you that you really liked? I really liked what the Cardinals did. And, and yes, I realize that we're, we're sitting here picking teams to pick at the top of the draft or had multiple first-round picks. But honestly, that's what's going to make the biggest impression on you immediately because you're getting more of the top guys. And, you know, the Cardinals, you know, kind of bounced around a little bit. Uh, you know, they used their first pick uh, on Delvin Perez, Puerto Rican shortstop, who would have been, you know, best shortstop in the draft and considered a kind of a lock for the top ten choices before positive tests for PEDs. Um, you know, if, if, if he can get, you know, that behind him and his talent was, was more real than artificial, I mean, that could be a steal. I thought Dakota Hudson, their, their third of three first-round picks was a steal. Mississippi State right-hander, tremendous fastball-slider combination. You know, not great. His last couple starts lean up to draft, which is why I think he was available. Um, and the funny thing is, is I'm pretty sure had he not gone 34, I think the Reds might have popped him at 35. I think the Reds had their eye on him. Um, you know, the other third-round pick, or first-round pick, the third of their first-round picks, at number 33 in between Perez and Hudson was Dilson, Dylan Carlson, who was probably the biggest surprise in the first round. But he's a switch hitter with a good stroke from both sides of the plate and some power. Uh, so that one was kind of a, an interesting. But then I thought they got some really nice values after that. Second and third round, they got two college starters. I thought we were going to go around higher than they did. And Virginia's Connor Jones, North Carolina's Zach Allen, the right-handers, good stuff, throw a lot of strikes, track record of success in the ACC at big-time programs. I thought in the fifth round they, they flat-out stole, assuming they could sign him, uh, Mississippi High School first baseman Walker Robbins, uh, just a very advanced prep hitter. Uh, you know, he, he he's big. You know, he's got strength, he's got bat speed, and he's huge. So you'd think this guy would be swinging for the fences. And I do think he'll have good power, but it's more of a mature you know approach. He'll he'll, he'll take pitches, work counts, recognize pitches, use the middle of the field. I think he's going to be a really good one. Um, they got a couple of catchers with good offensive ceilings, and Jeremy Martinez from Southern Cal. Andrew Kinzer from NC State, and then a pick I love. Eighth round, they got Sam Tevis from Wichita State and actually signed him below slot $100,000. If Sam Tevis had been healthy, he would have been probably a top two-round pick, had elbow problems last year at Wichita State, came out this year. He was in the low 90s up to 95 with a plus slider and looked really good. 
And then the elbow gave completely out, and he had Tommy John surgery. But, you know, hey, if the, the bounce back from, from elbow reconstruction happens and teams are always pretty confident they will, then, then Sam Tevis in the eighth round could, could just be an absolute, absolute steal. So, uh, yeah, I'm getting winded. That's how excited I am talking about these guys. There's so many names. I, I really liked what the, Cardinals did, uh, what the Cardinals did as well. All right, and, and one more pick for you, Jonathan. I will try not to get winded. <laughs> uh, I, I will – Stick with the you know easy pickings and, and go with the Atlanta Braves, who you know as the draft was approaching, it was clear that they were going to try to use the multiple picks they had to to their advantage. And, and once we knew that they were going to take Ian Anderson number three overall, we knew that uh, that's exactly what they were trying to do. And that's taking nothing away from Ian Anderson, who was a, you know a top half of the first round talent. Uh, they didn't reach for a third rounder with the number three overall pick, but. The savings that they're going to get for Ian Anderson from Ian Anderson has allowed them to already sign Joey Wentz and Kyle Mueller, and uh, you know that will, as Jim wrote in his story, that that's where most of their bonus pool is going to go. But those are three of the the best high school pitchers in this draft class, and this was a class that, that had a lot of good high school pitching in it. So uh, you know they they went bargain shopping and the second half of day two to, to be able to afford this. They haven't inked Ian Anderson just yet, but I'm sure that will happen soon. Um, I do like Brett Cumberland, who they got uh, at the end of you know, the supplemental second round, I guess, technically. Uh, if he can catch, then he's even better, but he can hit. Uh, you know, so it, it's very interesting what they, they did, but even just Anderson, Wentz, and, and Mueller alone, I think, uh, uh, or is it Muller? Um, I'm done trying to pronounce names correctly. Uh, <laughs> that trio alone gives them you know, a really exciting, it's kind of what you know, I think people think of the Braves, they think of high-end young pitching, so that kind of fits what they're trying to do. I was talking to uh, Mark Bowman, our Braves uh, reporter here at MLB.com yesterday, and he was saying maybe the only reason Ian Anderson hasn't signed yet is because he's actually still in school. He doesn't graduate till next week, so he's yeah, not allowed to. you can't sign until right? you graduate, so that's exactly <laughs> right. right. I feel bad for anybody who's still in school, though. It feels late at this point in the season, but, but in the spring anyway. But, uh, but that's the case for Ian Anderson up here in, in, uh, in the New York area, obviously. Um, all right, guys, so great job on that. And I know the one other guy, uh, Jim, that you had in your article as far as good, good drafts go with the other team was the Padres, and then you gave the Indians an honorable mention as a team that didn't draft really high up. So two other teams that did a nice job as well. Uh, all right, when we look at all these players, obviously some of them are going to have to wait longer than others for them to really make their mark throughout the minors and up to the major league level. Uh, so I wanted to get some takes on who's going to move quick. Who from this draft can really move quickly and um, within maybe a year or, or 18 months, are there some guys in this draft that we could see making their big league debuts? I started with Jim on, on the team topic. So, Jonathan, you want to go first with a, with a quick mover to the big leagues? As luck would have it, since I'm the one who wrote that story. Uh, um, I, see, I see your methods. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think Zach Birdie is the obvious choice. Uh, you know, there are some who feel that he might have the chance to, to start, uh, but uh, he definitely knows how to pitch out of the bullpen. He's been Louisville's closer and a really, really good one. Uh, the White Sox are going to have him relieve uh, whenever it is he joins their system, and I would not be surprised if you saw him in Chicago uh, before the year is over, uh, especially if they need bullpen help. 
uh, you know, then they're, you know, when they get to the off season, they can evaluate where they're at, what they think might work. There's a chance that then during the off season, they'll put them on a program so they can stretch them out and they can develop them as a starter at which point, you know, then it would take them a little bit longer to, to get back to the big leagues since he's not started, you know, but I think, you know, he is probably the, the odds on favorite to be the first guy to get there, uh, especially if they follow that, that path. And if the unless barring a, a blockbuster trade with the New York Yankees, it certainly looks like the Cubs need bullpen help. Uh, so that's one more reason. Maybe he's the Brandon Finnegan of 2016. Jim, you're up. Who do you like to get quickly to the big leagues? Um, I like Eric Lauer with the Potters, and I agree with Johnson. I mean, Bertie would be my top choice, too. Yeah, I just think it's a natural one there. But I like Eric Lauer with the Padres. This guy's just a super polished lefty, four pitches for strikes, solid stuff. I keep trying out this stat, and I'll try it out again. Led Division One, NCAA Division One, with the 0.69 ERA this year. That's the lowest ERA for Division One starters since 1979. Uh, gave up three earned runs total in his final 12 starts. He's just very athletic, repeats his delivery so easily, and just throws quality strike after quality strike. Wouldn't shock me at all if he's up in San Diego before the end of next season, and that's a park that will really play to his strengths. I think he's going to be a good one for the Padres. All right, I'll get one more from each of you. Jonathan, you, want to, you got another guy in mind? Well, you know what, I'll, we'll talk about Nick Senzel since he, we brought him up and talking to Chris Buckley earlier. You know, and I don't think Chris is on the, the line anymore, Jonathan. <laughs> you don't have to keep going reds with these picks. He may I'm just listen. To make up, I'm just trying to make up for the 17-point question you asked him. That's all. That's okay. Um, but I, I want to throw one bat out there. I think the, you know, we you tend to think about you know advanced pitchers to get there, but I think as we've seen, uh, there have been some hitters who have gotten there quickly, and Senzel's the one guy who has the chance. I don't think he'll get there as quickly as you know the Schwarber Conforto uh, combination there, but he does have a really advanced approach at the plate, and he, you know he really knows how to hit. Uh, I think that. Uh, he's the kind of guy that maybe you could start in double A, uh, kind of like the Astros did with Alex Bregman this year, uh, and see what happens. Uh, so uh, of all the hitters in the draft class, he is the one that I see getting to the big leagues first, even if it's not quite in that, you know, as speedily as, uh, as the two I mentioned did. Jim, what do you think? One more guy. Yeah, and I agree with Jonathan. I think Nick, Nick Senzel probably is the first bat. I, I, too, for the sake of variety, I will go with a different demographic, and I will go with a, a high schooler. I think the first high schooler up might be Braxton Garrett with the Marlins. I just, You guys know I rave about this guy all the time, too. I, I just love the polish for high school lefty, and it's really good stuff. It, it's a low 90s fastball with angle in life. It's one of the best curveballs in the draft. It's a good feel for a changeup. This guy performs every time out. Uh, I just think Braxton Garrett for high school pitcher is going to move very, very quickly. Um, and we didn't mention him, but also if, if we want to mention a high school bat, I think Mickey Moniak is very polished for a high school kid too. And Mickey Moniak yeah. is going to get to the big leagues, you know, in a couple of years, you know, probably two, three years with the Phillies. All right. And one more thing I wanted to touch on with you guys. Um, some of the guys that get drafted last week are still playing college ball, obviously, and that's because the College World Series is coming up this week out in Omaha, um, a big deal every event. And I know Jim 
Jim, you get out there every year. Uh, maybe you can just kind of set the stage for us for uh, what's to come here with eight teams heading to Omaha. I know there was some, some key upsets in the Super Regionals. Uh, what can we expect, and who do you see reaching that final? Yeah, it's, yeah, I always say the College World Series is my favorite baseball event every year. This is actually going to be the 28th College World Series that I will have attended at least part of, uh, which, which shows how much I love it. But, you know, it's an interesting – it's a really interesting field because you had – the West Coast, the baseball was considered down. They didn't get any. They didn't even host a single regional tournament, 16 regional tournaments, and they got two teams. You know, upset, road upset, waves to Omaha and Arizona and UC Santa Barbara. The Big 12 was down in general this year. They only got three bids. Only three of their nine teams got bids into the tournament, and all three of them wound up in Omaha. TCU, Oklahoma State, and Texas Tech, and Texas Tech was the only national seed. Um, you've got Coastal Carolina is another upset team out there. I believe Coastal and UC Santa Barbara are the only uh, are the two teams making their first appearances in Omaha. And then the other two national seeds, along with Texas Tech, Florida, and Miami, come from the two power conferences, the SEC and the ACC, which had numerous teams get bids and host regionals and super regionals, but only sent one team each. To Omaha and both Miami and Florida had to battle and go the full three games in the Super Regionals to make it there. I, I do think that the best team out there, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before with Red Scounders and Chris Buckley because their fourth rounder is a Gator and Scott Moss. That Florida team is the number one national seed. Uh, to me, they're the heavy favorite, although as any kind of playoff baseball, you know, anything can happen. But, but that is just that team is so talented. We went over the pitching staff earlier. They've got eight guys on that pitching staff who are probably going to get drafted in the top three or four rounds by the time everything, you know, all their guys, you have a bunch of freshmen and sophomores too, including four guys who went that high this year in, in A.J. Puck, Dane Dunning, uh, Logan Shore, actually five guys this year, Sean Anderson and Scott Moss. It's just a ridiculous pitching staff. And then on the, on the, in the lineup, they probably have, I was counting them up earlier, I think they've got at least six guys who are going to go in the top three or four rounds by the time their college careers are over, including Buddy Reed and Peter Alonzo, who went in the second round this year. So in terms of a favorite, I would say it has to be the Gators, but there have been so many upsets this year on the road to Omaha that maybe, maybe this is a year you don't want to be the favorite. All right, great stuff. Uh, we look forward to seeing all the action from Omaha. That is going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 